Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. So, Patricia, how's it going with you? Okay, what, what is the latest in your life? So, I've been working since May virtually in this new position. And I think um, it's like getting adjusted to a new campus. I think that has been the challenge is being um, trying to figure out like my space in the workspace and trying to figure out what has been done and what is like new that they're trying to change into virtual um, and just figuring out like the dynamics of the campus while trying to like listen to what other like colleagues have been saying like what's the norm or what's our new things that we can do I think it has been pretty cool to be able to implement new things um, at work and just switching from student affairs to academic affairs now has been pretty cool, um, but I also miss certain things that I think um, academic affairs always misses. Um, and being a staff member is different because you're interacting with a lot of faculty um, in some of these team meetings or things like that. And so whenever they're talking, like a, like we had a town hall with all of the faculty and like everyone who works under um, my department. And I work under the College of Social Science there um, we have new majors coming in and so it's a, learning their own degree requirements or just know enough to refer to the students to major um, advisors um, all of that has been kind of strange just because again I don't know enough with the faculty or know enough people to like do a much more personalized referral so I think that's just like slowly but surely trying to meet people um, in like adjusting to still be indoors. I think the saddest part is, Ariana, you and I were talking about um, earlier this week, like the pandemic had started right when I was celebrating my birthday in March. And I spent, now it's gonna be six months this month in September, being stuck in quarantine under this pandemic and my partner and I were like, uh, like talking and I'm like, uh, his birthday's coming up in this month. And then mine's like, ours is in six months again. And I'm like, if we're still sheltering in place by March again, I wouldn't be surprised. But also I'm so sad that we spent like one year of our lives just listening and hearing all this pendejadas that are out here and how things have not changed, like more tragedies have like are coming out into the light, uh, which isn't different than what, you know, previously has happened in other years. It's just now more discussions or us having more platforms to be able to like discuss this. Um, but overall, it's just been like trying to stay sane. And I think I've seen a decline of like mental health from everyone in general. Like right now I'm recording in my room with a glass of wine because it's just so hard to like imagine having to do back-to-back -back appointments virtually sitting in a chair where I'm so used to like 
in a regular office, being able to walk around at least or see the scenery, eat outside. Like now it's, I think it's hitting me a lot more of like having to be indoors for so long. And especially with the fires that have been happening here in the Bay Area, like not only can you not go outside for regular, you know, reasons, um, but now it's like the air quality too. Like um, it's not advisable. And especially for people who have like breathing problems like I do, like it's not easy to just like go outside and and not feel the effects of two things at once, uh, pandemic and bad air quality. Um, and I think overall, I don't have many other like updates or major things happening other than just like feeling the effects of not being able to socialize like normally um, with folks or even, you know, we didn't even do our summer, like hang out with our friends, like how we would normally be able to do brunch without having to, you know, worry about all these precautions and just the overall feel of that, but just hanging in there. Um, what have you been up to, Ariana? Pretty much the same, right? Staying indoors and like you mentioned for a second, I forgot that there were fires going on. Um, today was the first day that I actually went on a walk outside in like the past two weeks because I was doing them daily and the air quality was really bad out here in Marin County. And so I, it was so refreshing just to go outside and do some sort of exercise, right? Just going on a, on a walk for an hour. And I did go on um, an, a mini hike or, yeah, uh, with my sister this past Sunday. And luckily that area was clear. Like it was, it wasn't smoky. It wasn't hard to breathe. So it was doable. And that gives me, you know, a little bit of a, a reprieve of, like you said, of being indoors and, and just going crazy. Right. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been, I guess an adjustment, like you said, it's been six months and we're still here. And like I, I shared with you, I'm like, I'm afraid it's going to be another six months, right? Uh, until we are able to hopefully have a vaccine of some sort. Um, and even then, like a lot of things have to be done to make sure they're, that they're safe. And, um, but yeah, um, since our last check-in, I've, you know, I feel like since we, um, started this podcast, I've been like applying for jobs, getting a job, changing jobs. <laughs> um, and it's been, um, um, it's been challenging. I mean, especially during COVID times to be in this application process, it's a lot more challenging just because, you know, everyone is applying to the limited number of positions. Um, with that said, I was able to get a, um, teaching fellow position with the Harvard Graduate School of Education. My um, former professor uh, invited me to be one of his teaching fellows for his contemporary immigration policy and educational practice class. So I'm excited I'll be starting that. Next week is the first uh, first day of classes for, for this. And so that's that's 
that goes more into alignment with what I've been seeking, something like that, and it's paid and it's the experience and still connected to the university. And I feel like that's that makes me feel like I'm doing something um, productive, something that's leading up to something else. So I'm really excited about that and meeting and connecting with the students virtually. So there's that, that's my small update. It's a big update. I think it's it's so hard to find like faculty or like teaching positions um, if you don't know already like the department or the faculty that could help you like expand your your experience in that way. And also, I think it's been interesting to see like a bunch of the like graduate assistants or like TAs who have had. Um, the strikes and stuff like I think now it's like interesting like now these positions are coming up so um, even attending some workshops um, virtually talking about like what can you do especially if you're considering doing doctorates like they're saying well there are some opportunities there aren't some opportunities but it's still like the same rules of the game are, are up to play right like you still have to know connections you still have to have someone give you opportunities and, and, and the like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and like you said, I mean, I reached out to this faculty over the summer, maybe at the end of June, and I'm barely hearing back, you know, like there's things are just taking even longer right now with, you know, getting back to people going through the interview process, or even just getting an email back um, takes a while. And I think it's just, it's just the, I think, I mean, something he shared this this morning when we met was that everyone is being pulled, uh, pulled in different directions and they're um, just overwhelmed maybe by all of these virtual meetings and Zoom webinars and um, things that they have to do virtually sitting for many hours. So he, I appreciate that he shared that. Let's, um, the culture he wanted to, provide for the students was of care, of um, support, and of um, just, just he didn't want to add something else to their plate. Like, you, he wanted it to be enjoyable. And I, I appreciated that. Like, he's conscious of, like, people's, people's busy lives and, and, and mental health and, and um, just having grace, right, which is, I think, very important right now in these times. But yeah. Hey, congrats, Ariana. Um, Thanks. And I think <laughs> it's also for some folks to understand, like you, like, I think this is just the thing that's been frustrating is hearing a lot about faculty is the rigor. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like, we're still going back at those things and which is interesting coming from the same faculty that we're talking about being anti-racist and taking away systemic stuff or at least retweeting some things or doing the little black square. Uh, and then it's the same faculty coming back in and saying that students are participating or doing this. And I'm like, well, part of it is maybe your content, that, the way that you're presenting it to students, really having to think about what is really important and what's just like in a busy assignment that you're just assigning or faculty just forgetting that, you know, there are more cases of different students um, contracting COVID or even their family members. So it's it's such a hard process 
to just normally like having family members or having to like have family members in the um, the hospitals or illnesses that come up. Imagínate más con like something like COVID under a pandemic and if they're going through economic stuff. Like we're in September and the last time we had rent, um, like it, what is it called? Like the rent extension or ¿cómo se llama? Like the... Yeah. Um, they were talking about it today. Uh, the rent, basically deferring the rent, right? Right. Like it, that was back in July, you mm -hmm. know, and we're now in September and another month has started and rent will continue to be due in the first of mm -hmm. many um, months. And I'm like, I don't see how this is going to be sustainable. And especially considering like the spring semester, a lot of people are thinking about coming back to campus and housing and talking about housing. I moved out of the, the apartment from Fresno and la maldita like student apartments that I was living in, uh, overcharged me like $300 on like stupid overcharge fees. It wasn't, they didn't get a security deposit, but like they charged, they sent an email Uh, with all this like information about like needing to repaint a full bedroom, uh, they they're charging me a cleaning fee for both the common area and my room, and then I had to look up like um, like how do you dispute a charge? Because I'm like I'm I'm not gonna have the same situation happen when I was renting a house with my housemates in undergrad, where I didn't know my like rights because. Who needs to, like, te digo, they, they exploit you everywhere they can. And I'm like, that's just so much labor to have to, like, be so, like, researched. Well, well know all these resources and these rules um, and the laws. And so from that experience, I learned, like, take pictures, like, make sure that everything is in writing of anything that is wrong or whatever. But that's just so much effort that we have to put so we don't get, like, taken advantage of. And then on top of that, I like disputed the charge, wrote this nice letter. They sent me of like an email back saying that that's not like legit or like they're going to still charge me because of this and this. They sent me pictures. Tell me why they sent me pictures of the wrong room. Like it wasn't my room. It was my roommate's room. And then claiming that. And then I asked them for the receipts because I'm like, I need the receipts of the labor that was done. And the hours spent on it. In the email, it says that they repainted both rooms, did not charge my roommate for her repainting of the room, but supercharged me on that. And then they can get away with it. Like you have to be super detailed and stuff. And I'm like, what do I need to do? Like go to small courts claim? Like, So for anyone out there listening, like if you have any suggestions, any lawyers <laughs> or what I can do, um, send me my way. In the meantime, I'm going to email them back and just say that that's not my room, that I have no confidence in them, like knowing it. like, it's been a hassle. It's been a hassle. It's been a hassle for sure. I'm like, y'all are liars. Yeah. Yeah. They're just trying to like, squeeze some pennies out of you you know like any money that they can get because they they they're probably in the negatives because everyone had to leave so suddenly right this is the way that they can make up for that a little bit and yeah. if you're not and it's there student apartments, it's right it's student apartments and which and is i know they take advantage of it because of that right 
Yeah, I would just look at local nonprofit organizations. Sometimes they have pro bono lawyers or someone who can um, ask, you know, further questions, you know, have that that language that will intimidate them or kind of like feel, make them feel like, oh, you're not by yourself. Because oftentimes they know that you don't know what's in your lease and, or like how to counter what they're saying, you know, with like ways. And I, I mean, something similar happened to me when I was in Boston and I was technically breaking my lease because I was moving out due to COVID. Like that was not my intention. And I contacted a local nonprofit and um, oftentimes it's more like, oh, well, you know, you can discuss this with my lawyer or a third party will contact you. Like you have to use language like that for them to feel like, oh, you know, how far do you want to take this? You know, to your point about do they really want to take this to small uh, court claims? Which is unfortunate because I'm like, if there's a lot of students who, you know, had to leave early or trying to break the lease, the lease that they had, like my intention like was to still stay there for a long time because I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to be. Um, the place was furnished. It was just going to be for two years. Like it, it just was convenience. But at this, at this rate, I'm like, this is just a huge inconvenience. They wouldn't let me break my lease. They, I had to have the lease taken over. And I'm like, who the hell is going to, you know, take over a lease for three months. Um, so, and at that time I was like looking for a new apartment. So like, that's the part that was the challenge, right? Like, are you going to get um, you know, evicted and have that on your record to the point that you can't go to the next housing thing. And ¿y qué pasa con mucha gente? Like, that's what happens to a lot of students. You know, not only other guarantors going to be also having that thing, but you too as a student. And then if you wanted to get another rental place, well, it's going to be difficult because you're going to have that on your record. And like electricity too, like I wasn't there for three months and I had told them in writing, um, I'm leaving and vacating the space in August, uh, in April. Like, if you didn't take pictures of when I left, and they're a mess, and that's a thing that I'm, like, super frustrated because I'm, like, okay, COVID thing, like, it's unrealistic. We're not going to have a, a move out in the same way. And they're, like, well, you know, they said in the email, well, we can't do anything because... Uh, we check the apartments on this on this date for everyone, and I'm like, well, that's not my problem, you know. Like, uh, that, that just like irks me the most is having to spend so much time trying to research and do all of this while doing all my other things. And on top of that, I'm like, if you're working, you can't be on the phone like 24/7, like trying to like get people to like, you know, like you know, like finding out pro bono like lawyers. And all of them just work on Monday through Friday, 9 to 4, 30, and you're working also 9 to 4, you know, or 5. Um, it's it's too much. Yeah, I don't think those rules should apply when you're going through a pandemic. Like, yes, in, in any other time, if I broke my lease and everything, you know, around us was fine, it makes sense, right? But come on, those those uh, rules should not apply because it did not just happen to you. It happened to a lot of students or a lot of people. And this was known, like this was something that people knew was going to happen. Like, you know, like, and it's not, it's out of your control. It was imposed on all of us. So. And also like, it's, it's like, 
um, even if it wasn't a pandemic, right? Like it's like having some sort of like, it's a student apartments. If you decided to yeah. go into this business, stop being a shark and trying to go against all these people that are so vulnerable. And on mm-hmm. top of that, like my roommate paid for the, the charges and I was like, no, like you have to no. like fight and do this. And then when you fight, like I get why people don't do it because I'm like, it's so much easier to just pay them off and just be like, screw mm. this. Pero los cargas estaban tan outrageous. Like, what pissed me off, I'm like, I paid three months of rent that I wasn't there for. I have now my new rent. And I'm like, and then aparte me estás overcharging things that aren't even mine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they need to check their their documents, their receipts. And um, yeah, you should even like say you want to talk to their manager. I don't know, like. Bring it up to the higher ups. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like your CEO, like whatever. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to send them an email and just like disputing and telling them like all this. And I'm like, um, you'll be hearing from my lawyer. And then I'll just yeah. contact the lawyer. And I'm like, exactly. Well, I wish you the best of luck, Wathi. I know it's going to, it's challenging to go through that whole process and you just want it to be over. But I do hope you get your money. Right. Y si, y si tengo millones, ya saben. <laughs> for for uh, emotional... ¿Cómo dicen this? Is it uh, distress? Something? Distress and time taken away from you because you're not getting that time back. And exploitation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, best of luck on us and also for you for your new teaching gig. Um, yeah, I'm excited. The next month. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. I think... We're making the best of fall 2020 and let's see where it takes us. So let's start this episode. And today we have um, a really great guest that we met um, online. Um, Her name is Cynthia Ann Ramirez. Her pronouns are she, her, hers. Our guest position, um, she is a PhD candidate in preventative medicine and health uh, behavior research at Keck. Uh, School of Medicine at the University of Southern California, also known as USC. Uh, Cynthia N. Ramirez is a doctorate student who received her BS in Health Promotion and Disease Prevention and an MPH, which is a Master's of Public Health with an emphasis in biostatistics and epidemiology from the University of Southern California. Her research interests include documenting and reducing multiple health risk and testing novel strategies and preventions to reduce inequities in health and health access among homeless, uninsured, and or undocumented patients, collaborating with underserved populations on community-based participatory research, and advancing policy through science. Her current studies include research on patient perceptions of language, congruency, and doctor-patient communication, and exploratory study investigating immigration status as a social determinant of health and health access among urban and emergency department patients. Ms. Ramirez has earned several health science awards throughout her career, including the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health Minority Training Program in Cancer Control Research Fellowship, Duke University School of Medicine Summer Health Professions Education Program Scholarship, and the National Institute of Health Minority Health and Health Disparities Supplement Award. Ms. Ramirez is a first-generation college student. She identifies as a non-traditional college student and is passionate about promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion in the health sciences. When not on campus and pre-COVID-19, 
You can find Ms. Ramirez volunteering in harm reduction mobile health clinics, greeting or working at a local coffee shop, exploring farmer's markets, or at a park with friends and her dog, Milo. Recently, she's been taking advantage of her parents' delicious cooking while social distancing and staying at home in the San Francisco Bay Area. Ms. Ramirez is a proud San Francisco Bay Area native, Go Warriors. She enjoys exploring and supporting local businesses and restaurants, reading, spending time outdoors, game movie nights, and karaoke with family and friends. So welcome, Cynthia. How are you? Thank you, guys. I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have another Bay Area, you know, scholar person in higher ed. (laughs) So this is really exciting. (laughs) My parents born and raised in the East Bay in Richmond, and then now they live in Walnut Creek. So I decided to come social distance here because the food is a lot better. And they just like, they were prepared. They always had so much like arroz and frijoles like they were like we're gonna make this so don't worry just come over here so I just drove down um maybe like six weeks ago now perfect (laughs) perfect so um Cynthia how does it feel to have been a listener on our podcast and now you are a guest on our show it's really exciting um I really like when I tell you that I really really liked just your page in general and then I read or I listened to the first episode and I love like the message behind what you guys are doing I I think it's so needed and the just other women in general but specifically like women of color in in academia that I've talked to we've been like you know we're all going through very similar struggles but I don't think we talk about it a lot and it's not that it's people don't want to share about it. It's just kind of there, there's not platforms that, that we were aware of at the time. And, you know, through like more looking on Instagram and stuff, I've, I've found that there's, you know, similar platforms, but I think it's really cool to still be a student and doing it versus like having finished graduated and you're done and you're looking back. I think talking about the struggle that you're still going through um, is so relatable and it's so necessary so I think it's so cool how you guys are promoting transparency and just sharing stories and it brings people together so I'm really like honored to be here thank you guys no thank you thank you for reaching out and if you can just maybe briefly share with our audience about how you found us and how you reached out to us so that people know that you know we we are we welcome to invite other people on to share their experiences Um, so I literally found you guys by just looking up like hashtags and looking up different accounts because I'm, I'm new to Instagram too. I just made my Instagram during this COVID kind of social distancing thing because I was reading a lot and stuff and I enjoyed that. And then I was working a lot when I was trying to, you know, get my mind off of things. And so I decided to get an Instagram because, you know, I wanted something to do and spend my time on. And I found, you know, kind of these other accounts and through like taggings and stuff I just kind of like literally by happenstance I think came across you guys um and I think I was looking at your stories and I loved the stuff that you that you guys are posting so I was like oh this is so cool and then I looked at your page and I looked at your you know on Spotify and I found you guys and I was listening and I was literally like a couple minutes into listening to your first episode and I got on my laptop and I sent you guys a, a little message and I was like, this is so cool. I just wanted to give you guys props. Because the other thing is, too, that 
I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have a, I don't have a podcast. I don't have a, an account that I run for, for like a bigger message kind of thing, but I don't know if you guys get props. I don't know if people reach out to you. I hope you guys do, but I know that if, if I was imagining myself in your situation, I would love to just get like a random message from someone that came across and, and thought it was cool. So I was like, let me give them props. And then let me also ask them if, you know, or just offer like, if you guys ever want to utilize my network that I have of, you know, students at USC, specifically on the health science campus, which a lot of people don't know that USC has two campuses. We have the main campus that's in downtown LA. And then we have the health science campus that is um, like further and it's been more like east and it's very, it's connected to the LA County Hospital. So, um, but yeah, I just wanted to reach out and say like, I could see that you guys were starting to do something that was really cool. And if I can be helpful at all um, in offering my network or my experience, I would be happy to do that. And then you guys were like, hey, do you have anything you don't want to talk about? Or like, you know, and then I said, yes, um, I would love to see an episode on like mental health and just kind of disabilities in higher education because they are there for sure. And, and those people are there. So that's how we linked up. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it, it was important for us to also um, keep bringing in guests to talk about not just their journey and where they're at, because a lot of us, um, a lot of the guests that we've had come from all walks of life. Uh, in a variety of different disciplines. Naturally, we have a lot of in higher ed <laughs> because that's that's where we work and that's where we're connected with. But I think it's important to, the more we've connected with a lot of people, the more we've seen how many of us don't just do higher ed. We don't just do our program. We are connected and, and volunteer and work in multiple communities. And I think that's the thing that we've wanted to connect a lot more of our listeners is seeing how we've been able to either create some new things within our field. Cause I think that's even hard to do, to know how to create your own, you know, platform, especially if you're first in your families and don't know how to navigate a lot of these systems, or even if you're, you're the first in your family to do graduate school or graduate school in the way that you're doing it. Right. So I think it's important for us to just listen how, people have done their, their, their journeys. So we can see if we can connect with that person or create something like that in our campus. I think we are speaking from California. So that's a very, very different space than probably other states or even countries that are listening to us um, just to get a sense of what are the environments that we're in? Because a lot of the people um, uh, that I've met that are Latinx or women of color, don't go into the health science fields because they usually get pushed out early on. Yes, we could have a whole other episode on just that. Um, 100%, 100% to pursue health science to begin with. It's a very male dominated field and to get a bachelor's in it is one thing, but to pursue higher education in the health sciences is a whole other because of I mean, there's so many barriers. Truly, it is a lot of barriers. And um, so I think you're, you're absolutely right on that. So, Cynthia, um, since we've touched on how you found us um, and you, what you wanted to t- uh, people to talk about, can you tell us a little bit more about your work, your journey, and how did you enter your PhD program? Yeah, um, 
So the first thing I want to start off with, and I think kind of the, it's my proudest, I guess, fact, and it's that I, I literally struggled to graduate high school. Mm-hmm. I struggled really, really hard to, to get the GPA that like C average to get up and out. And um, I think it, it has a lot to, it, it's not all in, in my diagnosis. So I have ADHD. I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was nine, but um, I think really what even just like finding out I had ADHD was because my parents moved physically, but also I did a lot of moving school districts when I was young. Um, My parents are immigrants and we lived in Richmond, California, and the school districts there are just not very well funded. There's, um, as unfortunately a lot of school districts are where a lot of um, black and brown families live. And so my parents, though, I guess this is like decisions they made back in the day when they met kind of thing. But um, they they knew that the one thing that they wanted for their kids was to give them an opportunity for for education. They wanted us to go to college really, really badly. And we, but we never talked about college, which I, which I thought was really interesting growing up. Like it was kind of like, you know, you had to go to high school and you had to get your, you know, your diploma. But um we never talked about college because no one had done it in my family before on, on any of the sides. Um, so when I moved the first time, I think it was in third grade was the first time that we moved. And then I moved every year since then up until sixth grade or seventh grade, every school year um, we were switching school districts and, they were doing that and each school district like improved little by little. <laughs> um, and so when I find when I finally got to this school district, which is Akalani's high school district, it's one of the at the time when I was going to high school here was the number one public school district in California. So I went from one of uh, the more uh I guess a school district that had significantly less resources and like a graduation rate of less than 40% to a like 90 something percent graduation rate um, and statistics. And I just never caught up. I think that was kind of the beginning of my struggling in school journey, but um, because they were just so different, I was exposed to the first time to like uh, a ceramics class. I was like, what, what is this? (laughs) and paper mache and I remember and and nobody looked like me I went from a school district where I was surrounded by people with curly hair to people with you know just a completely more diversity to to not so much diversity and um and then on top of that I I didn't know I didn't come in with the the level of knowledge that that they had had and were growing since they were in preschool like it starts young here um so I never really caught up and I I struggled academically all the way to high school um and so when I got here is when the the teacher like pretty early on was like okay something's you know your your daughter has behavioral and like attentive issues things like that um and she recommended that that we go get assessed, and then that's when I went to meet a Kaiser, and I was diagnosed with with ADHD. Um, but I didn't get accommodations.
for a really long time. I don't know if you guys are super familiar with like accommodations and and how those kind of are. Do you guys have any experience with like that stuff? Do you know much about it? I've had to, in terms of knowing how to work with um, students with different abilities and, and higher ed, it's a very, very different process than in the K through 12. I think that yeah. has been what I've seen a lot. Um, and then also in the referral process, it gets even harder to, you know, kind of push the student to like, hey, I think you have some either learning disability or it's a lot more. I've seen a lot more on helping students with depression and, and like like deep depression and lack of motivation, things like that, or even anxiety to help them like, hey, you can actually get accommodations in college to either get more testing time, accommodations of changing of assignments or even the pace or, you know, like any other thing that you can, like technology or equipment that you will need uh, in the actual classroom. A lot of the times, the stories that I hear from either the office or the students is the professor did not, you know, meet that accommodation, even though they could be law, like there could be a lawsuit, but it's even harder when it comes to minoritized students to actually know about all their rights and have that conversation with their parents. So it gets even trickier as an adult because once you get either diagnosed or even the referral to the, um, the counseling center to tell you like, hey, you do have depression or, you know, all these things um, to meet the criteria. It's just so much bureaucracy and lack of resources or lack of someone even just telling you, hey, I think you should, you know, try to get that. And then for you to believe, I think it gets pretty harder. Um, I do know that if you have any um, services in K through 12, they can transfer over to higher ed a lot quicker. But um, it depends on, again, the person and how they navigate. It gets even more complicated. But um, yeah. I don't know about your, your experience so far. Yeah, so I, did, so I didn't get accommodations actually until I got to high school when my grades were just tanking. And when I'm talking about like Fs on my report card, I'm like, they're there, Ds, Fs. But I'm really, I mean, now looking back, I'm, you know, I just kind of feel, I feel really like, sad for my little younger self like kind of looking back because I genuinely at the time did believe what I was being told by counselors and even some teachers which was that like my brain just didn't work I would be told you know repeatedly like you know when we were doing uh, college counseling and when they you know talk about college and they show you different pamphlets and where to apply and stuff like that um, I was given pamphlets to prestigious community colleges. Like I wasn't given anything to any type of university. The, our um, assigned, you know, advisor based on last name um, told my mom and I in a meeting, like we were sitting right there and she just said, you know, I wouldn't even waste my time or my money applying to universities. Her, her brain just isn't programmed. It's not wired that way. She's, she's not someone that can do that it would be she said actually it would be unfair to push me to do that because um you know it wouldn't be fair it would be asking you know asking me to do something that I'm not naturally programmed to do and I believed her I I full I was like she's right I want to go I want to go do other things I'm I'm great with my hands like I wanted to I want to go to beauty school for a while and then I was like okay let me do interior design I can go to some type of trades like I was in my mind, I was ready to to embrace that. And my mom was like, 
no, like that, that's not, that's not you. I live with you. And my dad would tell me like, we know you, we see that you memorize, you know, song lyrics in a couple of, you know, just a couple tries, like that brain works and we know it works. We just, we don't know how to work with it yet. And, you know, mental health and, and neurodevelopmental disorders are, are not, at least in my experience, they are not talked about in the Latino community. Um, I think for the longest time, anxiety was just kind of labeled as, you know, someone that is bien is nerviosa, like she's just always nervous. And, and then when, you know, now that I'm older and I look back at the people that were described as bien nerviosas were also the people that were having to escape civil war at the same time. Like they're, they probably have trauma is what it is. But I don't think we had the words and the language to describe what was going on. And so that was the exact same thing that happened in my family where my parents were like, okay, we know her brain works. We see it work. It's not working in this context, but I know that thing works. <laughs> so, but they also didn't know what to do because medication was very taboo. Like, you know, medication was not the thing. You can do things naturally. You can pray. There's so many other ways to go about things. If, if you take drugs, you'll get addicted. Like that was the, the narrative that, that they had been told and grew up with. And so that was their norm. And so I'm over here like, you know, this high school student that doesn't want to get addicted to these drugs that I'm scared of. But then at the same time, like, I don't want to keep feeling, you know, dumb or less than. So it was really hard to navigate that space. Um, but but we did and i i was able to start doing better in school i was moved into the learning center class or special ed class is another name that that it gets tagged with and um i got extended like time and i did get accommodations on my exams but that was only because my parents went out of their way to get evaluated the school district didn't want to evaluate me they were just like you know, we don't have the funding for that. We don't have the time. And so my parents, we would drive out. Um, it was like a two and a half hour drive, like Los Gatos or something, somewhere really far from where we lived at the time. Um, and it was like a two hour drive. My mom would take me out of school. She would take me out of PE to take me to go get this testing that takes weeks to do. And then, you know, they had to come up with money on their own to do that. Um, so they really, they championed for me. I can't even like take the credit. My parents take complete credit for me even being able to learn about my disability and, and kind of work with it. So once we did that, I started to see better grades. I still graduated with like probably like a C minus average. Like, you know, I think it was like a two point something. Um, so, but I did it. I, I got my diploma and um, I got into this really tiny school in uh, Washington. It's called St. Martin's University. It was one of the only universities that didn't require an SAT score, though I did take the SAT. I just did really badly on it. So um, they, they didn't require SATs and I got in on academic probation. So I barely got into that school too um and I had to move really far and once I was there is when I I took like an intro to psych class that's the very first time I learned about my disability because I assigned myself ADHD um and then I transferred yes, twice. twice 
I transferred. I went to Dominican University. I think I heard one of you guys talk about it. I don't know if, if I heard wrong on, on a podcast, but um, right, one of you did. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I went to Dominican my sophomore year. Then I, I finally got into USC, which was like my dream school. Um, and at USC, I was, I was pre-med. I was like, going to go to med school and I wanted to be a doctor because I had like built up my self-esteem and I was like hey look I can get all A's in college when they do accommodations it's so much easier in college to get accommodated oh my god um and when I like learned more about my disability they have mental health services in college so I was able to see like a psychologist and she was able to talk me through and was like, okay, this is what ADHD actually means. It's not a death sentence. Um, because when I was diagnosed, I started crying because I thought that ADHD was like a cancer and I was going to die. <laughs> so she was like, no, no, you're fine. It's nothing like that. This, some people do behavioral therapy. Some people do medication. It was just like a new world of information. And I was finally able to see my ADHD as like a strength versus a weakness. Um, and I, I started doing a lot better in school. I, um, switched around in majors that interested me. And obviously when you're interested in subjects, you start to perform better in them. You work, um, differently with them. Uh, and so I, I had a internship that really was kind of when I switched and learned a lot more about research. So I always wanted to go to USC because of research. And I loved it. I loved this idea of like finding novel information and new information. Um, so I pursued a couple of research opportunities. And then um, I got this internship at Duke University because I was pre-med. And I went there and I learned about health disparities. And that was the first time that I had, again, learned language to describe what I had seen growing up for so long. Like I was learning about diabetes and I was learning about um public hospitals versus private hospitals and I was like whoa like what what is all this what's going on and um, I was finding language to describe what I had grown up with and um, so when I came back that's when I was like okay I need to do research I so instead of taking a gap year I got my master's in public health with an emphasis in biostatistics and epidemiology and then once I was in public health I just I fell in love with research like I I was so head over heels and and warped in this like hearing people's stories learning about them so I do a lot of qualitative and mixed methods research so I do not only like the numbers side and those statistics um but also the qualitative like interpreting of different like interpersonal and you know interactions so um yeah so it was a very to get to my PhD was a very like natural transition because I already had like an advisor and he was willing to take me in and fund me. So it was a very, I got really lucky that, that I think is, I mean, I think it's hard work. I I earned my spot at my MPH. Um, But from there, I think it was just luck that somebody took a chance and was like, okay, we'll, we'll take her and, and we'll fund her. So that was a really long winded answer. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I I wanted to talk about something you mentioned about, just the conversations we have in Latinx communities about, you know, growing up with 
um, either family members or yourself having multiple like disabilities. And that could range from, um, I can speak from my own experience. I have a ton of family members who have either mental or physical disabilities um, or even autoimmune, you know, like things like Mm -hmm. that. So I think it was interesting because I grew up with a cousin who had, um, when you mentioned the different words that they have, I'm like, es bien hiperactivo was always like yeah. the words, right? Like, um, but yeah. I think it, it, it was sad just knowing and growing up and just being like, because my, both my parents grew up, my dad grew up with, his, his sister is physically disabled. And then my mom has an autistic brother. So I grew up with those kind of different perspectives mm-hmm. and just how different my family interacted with, like, you know, sin vergüenza and just saying like, well, that, that is our family member. But mm-hmm. I think it was the uncomfortableness of other people having to be like, oh, we have to adapt our, your lifestyle. Like, and people are so selfish, you know, like, and mm-hmm. they don't understand how, like, how the community in general or all of us accommodate our family gatherings to help them right and then that's something that we don't see as often in families or even just know that whenever we're going out on a trip we go out of our way to include them um in anything that we do but I think in one of my family members and this cousin in particular they still the family doesn't say exactly what he has Mm -hmm. um it's very much like oh he just has medication and then that's it Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's the sad part coming in because their family members are pretty open, like my parents specifically, and they still won't reveal to him because it's still they carry that shame of like, oh, we don't talk about, you know, what they had, even if, you know, like I mentioned my older sister with her accident, she has bipolar disorder, too. So it's just like the more we talk about it, the more we're able to just understand that the way that the brain works is just very, very different. And it's nothing outside of the world of what we have already in, in our brains. Yeah. No, and I think that the, the other part to that too is that by talking about it, my hope is that we start to normalize it because every brain is so unique. And just because, I mean, this took me a while to, to embrace, but just because you do have a diagnosis or a disability, though it can make... Um, it more difficult to maneuver life only because it's not normal. Like it's not right now, the way that our education system, our work system, like getting accommodations for any type of diagnosis or disability at work is so difficult. Like, especially for physical ones, it's really hard to get a job. Um, But to, and it's, I think, I wonder if it's because it's just not normal now, but the more I talk about my diagnosis, I think, um, you know, by by my opening up, I've I've found that it helps other, other people, people open up because they're like, hey, yeah, same. And then we start to talk about whatever it is, you know, whatever we're, we have. But I've, I've found actually that it's not that nobody has these d- diagnoses or disabilities. It's just that none of us have been empowered to talk about them. The, the chances of if you bring up some type of disability or conversation, the chances of somebody just just like being kind of dumbfounded and saying like, oh, I don't know what that means. I don't know anyone with any type of, you know, a disability or any type of diagnosis or any, you know, whatever. I have, I've, I've yet to run into someone like that. Like normally what happens is even when I talk to like Diaz or abuelas, someone's like, oh, 
yeah, either, either they'll say like, maybe I have like anxiety. And I'm like, yep, yeah, yeah, I think you <laughs> I've known this or, this whole time. Yeah, yeah. You, you definitely have yes. <laughs> Or I'll hear them say like, oh, no crees que, que el niño de blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, maybe, you know, and it becomes this kind of like, we start to identify like language, like I said, where we're, we're like, oh, maybe we just don't know how to talk about it yet. Or yeah, there's this shame associated with it. But my hope is that by by us like connecting more and seeing that this is actually this is the norm to have unique brains is the norm to have unique physical bodies is normal. And there's no one, you know, eugenic, perfect brain chemistry and pattern or perfect DNA sequence like everybody is unique. Literally, that's the thing. And if you come at it from a spiritual perspective or a science perspective, from my understanding, um, the the message is the same, and it's that every single person is unique, and that's something that we should be celebrating and embracing and trying to learn more about. Um, so, but yeah, I, I do hope that we kind of like kick this shame and guilt that we have in the butt, but it's hard. Like, I remember even going to mass, going to mass on Sundays was like, the worst thing that you could have done to me because I have ADHD I'm hyper and I can't I cannot sit still I like to move around I like to talk and so sitting for an hour plus on something that is um no longer like engaging my brain because I've memorized all the chants I've memorized all the like I know everything now it's not new to me was really hard and so I would be labeled as like you know misbehaved or or something like that when in reality and then we moved so then right like back to this kind of like seeing two different worlds and then we moved and then this new church down the street has a daycare like they have this little daycare that you can take the kids and they go into this like quiet silent room with with like nannies and a, a room full of toys and coloring and tv and you don't have to worry about the the behavioral any type of thing with with kids right so yeah it's it's really interesting yeah it's interesting how you describe those moments in your life and I wonder how many families are dealing with similar situations with their kids and they don't realize what it is and then maybe they think it's just a behavior thing that they can train to control um Mm -hmm. I think of my, I don't know, one of my siblings at one point was, um, I think they were trying to diagnose him with something and then they're like, oh, you take them to the doctor and then the doctor is like, oh, wanting to prescribe medicine to my sibling um, so that that would control him during class. And it's like, my mom mentioned it to me and I'm like, I don't think he should be taking that stuff. Um, because then, you know, they say like they fix one thing, but then something else comes out of it as you're taking medicine. And so I don't know how it got resolved, but in the end, they ended up not taking the medicine. And um, I don't know if he was diagnosed or wasn't diagnosed. I'm not exactly clear, but I, it makes me wonder how many people are walking around not knowing exactly what it is. Or, or like yeah. misdiagnosed, you know, like it, mm-hmm. I think that has been the problem and the the hard, you know, every single one of my family members who has tried to get help or resources, it has been so challenging for them to not only get the doctor to believe them, 
uh, and to understand them because they speak Spanish. So that's that's one of the barriers mm-hmm. in the first place, right? Or even the words that they use when they translate it, it's not the scientific ones that they understand or could perception, like that because they are not bicultural, multicultural lens through that, they don't understand the descriptions or the like the symptoms or the behavior things that they're saying. They're not taken once translated it gets misconstructed. And so I think that's even the harder part where you're kind of trying to figuring out how to navigate the system of like medical. And if you don't have like how you're saying in a lot of your studies, um, Cynthia, like that's the hard part, right? Like the, the next part is, okay, like let's properly get you diagnosed, but also let's get you proper uh, holistic care that would tap into not just the medication. Cause I think that's the important part is like all medication has a side effect. So I think that's another stigma, right? Like that, you know, the the thing that you're saying, Ariana, about mm-hmm. one thing fixes and another. But I'm like, but then also the doctor has to consider the alternatives anyway. So mm-hmm. by by not taking it, I think it would be worse for some, depending on what they what what each individual has. But also, it's it's not just the medication that the student needs. It's like other things, and then the way that people interact with him in that environment to help them move forward. Right. Yeah. And I and I think, too, with the diagnosis thing, I mean, just the fact that like the diagnosis, the diagnostic tests are not they don't take culture into consideration whatsoever. So when you're when I was getting tested, I was like, I don't understand what that question means. Like like even I I remember like the tests, uh, they would they would tell you family scenarios and then you had to memorize like you had to remember and then a couple minutes later they would ask you to 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 tell the story back to them and to me the stories made no sense I had never <laughs> encountered the living situation that they were describing to Sally and Ben I was like what what do you mean they have yeah, I, like the stories that were told just were not my normal. And so to remember it and these like kind of little, uh, the tests are, are made specifically to be detail oriented. Mm-hmm. But if, if you have no reason to imagine that interaction happening or to see that happening, you're just kind of like, eh, whatever. Okay. That's not important. I'm going to remember this other thing, like that Sally has a dog and that she has a, right. Like these kind of other big stuff, but and then when I got older, I just got re- reassessed um, maybe like less than a year ago. Um, and and so I took my testing and then my my uh, counselor came back and or not my counselor at this point. Now my my therapist, my therapist came back and she was like, sorry, do you speak multiple languages? And I was like, I do. And she goes, OK, I'm sorry, you're going to have to come back for testing again because we need to give you there's now a like a test for students who speak multiple languages and that are bicultural. Um, And so she was like, we need to give you that test because this is not going to give us an accurate perception, not only of your IQ and your intelligence, um, but of, of, you know, kind of your, your, your problem areas, your troublesome areas. Um, So I came back and I did three additional days of testing and I scored a lot better. I was suddenly more intellectual just based off the fact that they adjusted for the fact that I speak multiple languages and that I'm, I'm bicultural. Yeah. Um, which is, that was, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a grown woman at this point and I had no idea, you know, I would have advocated for that, 
from the beginning, but I didn't even think about that. So there's there's so much to know. But I, from when I talked to my parents about what it was like for them to go through the process, they literally were like, we had no idea what we were doing. We went to some local bookstores, picked up some books. Uh, we didn't have anyone to talk about it with because, you know, like we've said here, it's very taboo and stigmatized and um and just shame and guilt I, I imagine um so they were just kind of like doing what they felt was in my best interest which was to be properly assessed and so given that the school district wasn't going to do that for them they 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 looked for someone that would help them um which I'm so so grateful for but it's interesting too because this was never brought up up until I moved to a very highly resourced uh, school district. Before it was just labeled as like, she's hyper, she's social, um, and she's easily bored. And, you know, sometimes she acts up, sometimes she has some behavioral stuff. She's, you know, that, that's it though. Like she's just kind of, she's kind of a bad kid sometimes, but who isn't, right? There's a lot of them. So mm-hmm. I'm just wondering like, how many other kids in my class we're dealing with not a behavioral issue. Don't label them as like macreados or something like that. Um, how many people are dealing with, with something else that had they been given resources, had somebody taken the time to, to meet and interact with them and see like, oh no, this is actually a really smart kid. There's something else going on here. This isn't that their brains don't work. This is something else going on. Um, like where would they be, right? So I just, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to, to fix it, but I, I, I hope that just by talking about it, that, that does something, it moves us in a different direction. Or at least, you I know, you're able to connect with people that are going through the same thing and might be able to share some resources just because on the same testing yeah. thing that happened to my sister too, where she was learning how to remember because she, she had amnesia. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the examples that they had were in English and they were like things that like, I'm like, her bilingual brain won't understand, but I'm like, how do you advocate as a sister? Because then the medical field also says, well, we can't reveal anything from your sister to you because you're not the parent. Mm -hmm. And then for my parents to tell me the stuff, I'm like, that's, it's just gets complicated because then you put laws embedded that are not also helpful for families that make decision-making with more than one person. Like we Mm -hmm. make decisions as a whole family unit or, you know, even with grandma, grandpa, like in, involved, and it just doesn't work like that. So I think that's, that speaks to the need of more of us talking about this, because again, a lot of us do experience this, we just don't have the words to understand what that was. And also yeah. to connect, oh, like that is messed up. Like how many of us know someone who has been labeled all these things that we've been mentioning throughout mm-hmm. the episode, mm-hmm. a ton of us, but you know, yeah. you include systems that are very exclusionary of us and the school system in general. And then you add learning, um, physical, mental, um, like um, health, you know, challenges. And then it just gets even worse. Um, but yeah. we just get angry because we don't have obedient children, which we, we mention yeah. a lot with like, um, we always shout out Latinx parenting on Instagram because that's, that's what comes out mm-hmm. is that we want obedient children. We want obedient students. 
we don't like people that are boconas. Uh, we don't like mm-hmm. people that, you know, think things differently. And their curriculum is boring in general. You know, like, <laughs> uh, like literally. And, and you grow up and you realize half of it was wrong. Like, that is not the truth. That is not how the civil rights movement was. How dare you? Like, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, they're bored probably because it just, it's, it's described in such a way that is, it's not even accurate like if feed if you're gonna feed kids something that's gonna bore them feed it to them that's historically accurate like don't try to make them memorize this stuff when they know that not to be their reality too because kids are smart kids are really smart when you're being taught something in school and you know that that's not the norm you're sitting there like mm, they they might again not have the language to be like okay I might be getting lied to or something like that but they, they know they're like mm, that doesn't seem right like whatever it may be right but kids have have like instincts and they're very attuned to listening to their gut or you know intuition and stuff so they I think they know too I I was very disengaged from school there were certain subjects that captivated my attention um but for the most part like I, I remember history. I did not like history class. <laughs> so how would you say uh, institutions been ableist in your experience? Uh, rarely do graduate school programs talk about accommodations, for example, other than offering people extensions on their assignment deadlines. Yeah, so really when I so in our all our syllabuses there's like they need to have like a clause at the end that says something like this class will accommodate your vote you know it's, I don't know I don't even know the language but it's always at the very end and it's always like they don't even read the full sentence it's kind of this like I've noticed that the teachers get pretty uncomfortable and I don't know if it's I don't I don't know what that is about either but it'll be like oh and students with special needs you know just talk to me after class <laughs> like Okay, so, um, but uh, but because I have had to lean on my accommodations heavily, I I, uh, I do not believe I would be where I am right now without them. Like just genuinely because I need them. Like they're they're not only it's it's interesting that they call them accommodations. It's kind of like okay, we will accommodate your unique circumstance, but it's not to me. It's not an accommodation. It's a necessity. Like you need to call these necessities for students because it's not just an accommodation to make me feel better it's it's something I genuinely need so um I found that because I am very vocal and I'm very um I know my rights I've, I've taken the time to know to educate myself on my rights um the universities have been very accommodating and they've been very helpful the ones where it gets kind of tricky is the professors I think so in general I have had amazing experiences with disability service offices truly like that is my favorite office on all of the different campuses I've I've involved myself with um everyone has been so kind and so just they believe me like what I say is going on they'll they'll believe me and so I really appreciate that um but the professors are ones that I think um could use some in the same way that 
you know, we could talk more about cultural sensitivities, some sensitivity to diagnoses and general just, you know, I guess accommodations or, you know, uh, for students. But I've had I've had teachers ask me in front of other students, what might what do I have? Oh, so what do you have? Um, which I don't mind sharing, but, you know, that's illegal, <laughs> first of all. But it's also, it can be uncomfortable sometimes if you didn't want, you know, your, your peers to know. Um, or they'll, they'll say, they'll assign the, the test for right after the lecture. So they'll lecture the first part and then the rest is the test. And the special kids have to go to a different room because they have accommodation. So we have to like get up and move our stuff. That was the same thing that happened in high school where it's just very obvious. And um, you are literally the the names that they give these classes are not by happenstance. Like literally, they treat you as a special need, so they you are selected out and moved in front of other people, and that can be really like embarrassing. I really was ashamed, and I felt a lot of guilt um, in high school about my disability. So when those when stuff like that it was just very like demeaning and demoralizing to me by the time I, I got to college I felt like okay this is I felt a little bit more empowered and because I knew more about it um but yeah I would say the schools have been wonderful but the professors could could use some work and some TAs too TAs are other times if the professor isn't going to deal with it then they tell their you know oh just email the TA and the TA is you know like uh okay, what do I do? Like, how do I do this? Um, so that's kind of been my experience so far. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting how um, some of these same things that we deal with in K-12 kind of carry over, carry over in college where um, like a lot of professors don't structure their classes. I mean, and, and I can t- like kind of foresee some of the things that they're like, oh, I don't want to accommodate or change my ways because this is my own style and I'm like well it's you're just uncomfortable because it's something new it's something that mm-hmm. you're not you know exposed to enough or you are you just kind of want to be more in control and it's a power dynamic thing um and I think it's the challenge of like them including I mean I've, I've seen some syllabus especially through ethnic studies where they have like 10 different pages of like resources but then it gets to the point that I'm like it's 10 pages of lists of things which doesn't <laughs> help and you're just kind of yeah. going through it um and it's hard because you know a lot of colleges don't have very good transition courses to help students really understand what are their rights what's the history of their institution what are some things that you can look up uh, like on the syllabus if they don't have it you know this is in your right to like advocate or say something about it or to the chair to the department things like that it has a lot of responsibility on the student to know all of these things and in order for them to to know that the faculty are like oh well now I have to think about first gen now I have to think about how I'm anti-black now I have to think about Mm -hmm. how you know I don't accommodate student parents how I don't accommodate transfers or older you know older um, age-wise like students and now I have to think about this and that, you know, and they're just like, well, you should have thought about all these things beforehand. And the thing that they mask themselves in is that they don't have training to teach. Well, first of all, faculty don't have training to teach TAs much less than that, you know, <laughs> and then you take it into an online virtual platform this fall, which 
I see a ton of things going wrong there. Um, yeah. And then now you, you ask them, I'm like, you should already think about these things going into your PhD program, wanting to make those changes. And I think that's the important part of like undergrads to, and even high school students to start thinking about ways that they can learn all these skills and not have to wait until they're faced with a student that has whatever they have or interactions with whatever they have to do that work. I'm like, you should have been doing this work. But again, there's no, there's no praise. There's no reward. <laughs> there's no anything to accommodate, accommodate, right, in quotes, um, all these students, which I'm pretty sure from my work of, you know, really changing the way that I do my practice, it actually serves everyone. It serves everyone the favor of doing all this work because then the student has so much extra time to process, mm -hmm. to do, especially when we're thinking about students with so many multiple responsibilities that I have to deal with than a privileged student who has, you know, the access to do whatever they want and the leisure yeah. to do it, right? Yeah, I, uh, I'm taking a summer class right now, actually, it just reminded me. So I took a test uh, Wednesday, I don't know, Tuesday, Thursday, oh, Thursday. So just a couple of days ago, I had a test and I work. So I, I'm a working student and um, I told the, the professor, I said, okay, uh, we were supposed to take our test on Wednesday, so I told, you know, my job that I was going to have to, I wasn't going to be able to, like, go online and do the hours um, until later. And they were like, okay, that, that sounds good. And then on Tuesday, the day before the supposed exam, he switches it and he's like, actually, now it's Thursday and it's going to start after lecture. Um, and I was like, sir, this is not going to work for me. I have a job. Like, I can't, I can't just... Keep, keep changing the schedule so then I took my exam from like 6 p.m to like no 5 to 11 and the whole time like when I was telling him because I get extended time he was like okay yeah I'm giving the students like three to four hours to complete the exam so you'll get time and a half on that but you won't need it like you certainly I know you get extra time but you won't need it I don't make my exams like that like don't worry but you know you're gonna have plenty of time it's not gonna be an issue and I literally was halfway through the last problem and I didn't finish. Like I used every single second of my time. Um, but even that. And so then I'm sitting there feeling like, oh, is there something wrong with me that it took me six hours, like the full six hours to take this exam? Um, and then I have to check myself and be like, no, I just don't think this professor understands um, like what he's actually assigning. Other students aren't finishing his exams either. So just because you, uh, you see that I have extended time, you're assuming that I'm going to perform the same way that you're expecting your other students to perform, which is already unrealistic. So then to assume that on with, you know, a neurodevelopmental cognitive disability, it, it doesn't make any sense. So yeah, it's just kind of rooted in these like assumptions that to begin with aren't true. <laughs> so it's a slippery slope from there. Those are like really great points for all of us to start, you know, being a bit more conscious for anyone on higher ed um, who works with students. Um, so we were just saying that it, it, it's all really important for faculty, staff, um, administrators, anyone, uh, even outreach, like to start thinking about ways that they need to make changes within the department to start 
really thinking about um, not only how to virtually do these things different, but also how do you create spaces to to make those changes and how you interact with students um, without the assumption. I think that's the thing that a lot more professionals need to work on, that you don't need to know exactly what the student is going through or them have to explicitly state what the identities, what their special circumstances are. You should have ample time to provide the student a space to interact the way that they need to interact with you. Um, for example, like um, I've, advocated with my staff because we're academic advisors um, to provide and even inform the students and work with the Office of Students with Disabilities to provide either interpretation, extra time, you know, different room spaces, and even extra time to work with the students uh, when we're helping them enroll in classes. So those are the things I just to look um, out for um, professors too, like whenever they're working on the syllabus or even interacting with students just provide that without having to need the student to tell you what it is. Yeah, just believe them. Like, if if they've gotten to that point, just believe them. And even (laughs) if they're lying, that's not your responsibility. (laughs) Yeah, that's not not your job. You're fine. Because this is the thing that we do. We become police, right? Mm, We end up policing the student. Well, it's not even our actual – well, it's not us. Even if it was in our job description, we shouldn't do it you know yeah 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 no you're right yeah so we're going to transition to talk about your your research and your projects that you've been conducting what are some things that you've found interesting because you mentioned you were involved in a variety of different projects throughout your journey in Mm -hmm. um, in college so what are some things that stuck out to you um, and how did you first start engaging in research um, your own personal research yeah, so uh, the bulk of my training has been in cancer, so um, oncology and kind of in different areas. So I started in breast cancer, and then I moved to pediatric cancer research, um, specifically related to long-term survival and long-term follow-up care. So you're diagnosed with cancer as a child, there's long-term implications of the diagnosis. And in order to document that, though, um, these once, you know, leaders of their health and and have a lot of health agencies, so health like independence and and be super motivated to go to the doctor. Um, And then we we wonder like, oh, okay, so why are only 40 percent of survivors of childhood cancer coming to the doctor and not 100 percent without acknowledging that there's a lot of trauma associated with the experience that they went through a lot of people are like all you told me from the beginning I just had to beat cancer I beat it and and now you're telling me that I have to remember that I had cancer and come to the doctor every year to revisit that no thank you I'm going to take my time and myself elsewhere (laughs) um and and so I was working on trying to to figure that out more like um, that's that was my my primary focus for a long time and it wasn't until actually I was in my PhD program I was admitted with the idea that I was going to do my whole dissertation on on pediatric cancer and um, and health disparities research uh, specifically among Spanish-speaking Hispanic patients Um, and then during that time I you know, as you do, I met different people. I met a couple doctors 
And I realized that I really missed being in the hospital. So I told you guys about how I was like at Duke and, and that's when I learned about health disparities and my like life changed and I came back and I was like, okay, I need to do health disparities research. Um, and I kind of just like went all in on that. But the more that I was getting like specialized and becoming more trained and more, you know, uh, an, an expert in, in kind of conducting research, the further literally, not only like physically, but like literally I became from patients. Like you're in, and they call it an ivory tower for a reason because I totally was, I was totally behind this computer screen running numbers and, you know, helping co-author papers, which is really prestigious. And I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity, but I got just so far away from the patients. Like I, 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 it was amazing to co-author a paper on pediatric oncology and I hadn't seen a pediatric oncology patient in months in like six months like how how am I specialized to talk about this topic and write a whole paper on it when I haven't even talked to someone that is actively dealing with this so I really I found myself in a place where I was really unmotivated I, I felt really unmotivated I I just, I thought about dropping out of my program. Like I just really was in a place where I was like, this is not, this is not what I envisioned myself doing. This is very different um, from what I, I had envisioned for myself. And so, but I also was like, but you got into this for a reason, you know, that you want this, this training. It's just, so I started to kind of think about like, how do I maneuver or how can I, you know, try to find that elsewhere. And so I started joining um, other research projects and I started kind of, you know, asking um, around and, and I, I came into contact with, with a doctor at LA County and she was like, hey, I'm really interested in, in looking at um, health disparities in Latinos in the emergency department. Uh, I need someone to help me do research. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, are you doing like what type of interview, you know, what type of, of study is it? And she said it was like interviewing format qualitative. Um, and that was like right up my alley. That's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be talking to patients and interacting with them and learning from them versus what I felt like I was doing, which was learning about and not like really learning like from them and their experiences. Um, so that's how I got involved in my health equity. And, and I like to talk about health equity versus health disparities because I do, I, I feel like there's a lot of unsaid uh, assumptions when we talk about sometimes the research that we do in health disparities, which is that it's like on the patient, you know, if there's something going on um, it's, it's either like the patient's fault or the, you know, the, the patient's culture or the, and I, I don't like that. I don't like the, that rhetoric and the, the way that that sounds. I don't like that at all. So um, I, I just kind of started growing my network in a very different area and with different types of researchers. And so now that's how I've kind of, I, I decided I made the decision to like switch and pivot and I decided to, kind of focus on this area of research and, and 
although I do still really care about, you know, pediatric cancer, um, for my dissertation, it's going to be specific to like homeless, undocumented, uninsured patients, really the underserved, like genuinely very underserved, not because they don't want to be receiving health and health care, but because there's like systemic structural inequities that are, are causing this. And um, I want to learn more about how we can, like, what do we have to do to out to do outreach with the patients? So I, I'm really, um, I think it's really important to, to constantly remind myself as a researcher that the people that know the best about any type of issue in health and related to health uh, that I'm investigating is the people that are actively going through it every day. I am a specialist in that I have received training and tools that will help me document maybe what's going on, but I can't do my job. I genuinely cannot do my job without my patients. And so my patients um, are and will always be the priority because they know best. Um, and so that's kind of how that's where I'm at now where we're doing um I'm into mixed methods because I think that quantitative, so like the numbers stuff can be very limiting and that it doesn't, you can only control for so much. <laughs> um, but in interviews, you really get people's stories and you really like hear from them and you get a holistic view of what they're going through and what barriers they have to a particular health issue that you're looking at. Um, so I'm really excited to be focusing on on this area of research and spending the rest of my training in, in that area, because it's really, it's also really under-researched, um, especially immigration status as a docu as a social determinant of health. It's really, really, really under-researched. Um, you could do like a literature review on it in like two days and you'll be done <laughs> because it's, there's really not a lot out there. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited. We're trying to figure out, um, how do, how, how can hospitals improve in, um, in language congruency? So that's the idea that like that, uh, the patient and the doctors both are communicating what they want to be communicating, which is very rare in, uh, hospitals that don't have bilingual speak, you know, bilingual doctors, um, and where translators are scarce, specifically at like LA County, where it's a public hospital and it's publicly funded and it's not, you know, there's not a lot of resources there. So we're trying to figure out like from the perceptions of the patient, again, um, I want my research to be patient centered from, from the patient's perspective, what was communicated, how was it communicated and how can we improve? Like what needs to be done so that you feel like empowered? So when in reality, I think it's actually more like institutional and and systemic access issues um, that are at play here. So I, I'm going to be focusing the rest of my dissertation and research and hopefully career on trying to document what's happening, use science to document what's going on here and, and try to get to the root of the problem because if you are coming up with solutions without having like truly documented what's going on, um, then I don't, I, you know, 
that has its own implications. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to myself and a lot of other researchers, kind of like a new wave of researchers, I think are, are trying to approach, uh, research differently. And so I'll be doing that. And then, um, particularly focusing on undocumented patients because, um, just given everything that's been going on recently, but it's been historical, right? Like what, what we're hearing in the stories and narratives are not new. It's just that we're more connected now and when we're hearing them more easily. Um, so I'm trying to document, help document and grow the field of uh, investigating immigration um, and documentation status as a social determinant of health. Cool. And what are the networks that you have utilized throughout your time in higher ed that have helped you? Um, I mean, my personal ones and, and like I lean heavily on my support system. That network has been everything to me. Um, and then in, institution wise, I mean, I think so, for example, like the disabilities office and, and what they they can offer. I've, I've reached out and used that. Um, the programs and grants and kind of opportunities that are specific to first generation uh, minority students, um, Hispanic scholarships, things like that have been very instrumental in my training. Um, the, the internships I've received along the way and awards have been, um, most of them like specific for minorities and supplements or grants that were developed for minorities. So I'm really appreciative uh, to that. So that kind of network, uh, I don't even know what it, I don't have like the words to what you would describe them as, but the network of people who like look back and help the next generation, them, (laughs) they have been everything uh, to me. And then I'm trying to think of, what other networks? Um, Have you met any say- like specific with like um, any identity based um, resources or networks mm-hmm. or even associations that have helped you also like tap into and network with people that um, are speaking towards not only just your experience as a student but also the kind of research that you're you're trying to conduct here. Unfortunately, no. Uh, this has been very like ground up grassroots, it feels like between, you know, my colleagues and I, but, um, but I do have, I, I do in my dissertation, what I'm, what I propose to do is to reach out to local communities and nonprofits that already are working with uh, migrant populations and undocumented patients and see if there's, you know, if there's like a health advocacy focus that maybe they have in their group that I can, I can help on. So, um, but since I haven't, you know, I'm, I'm still proposing the dissertation. We haven't done that yet, but no, I really haven't utilized. Um, I know there's different like groups on campuses and, and I would, I would go to them. Um, but I didn't, I really had, I, you know, I was, I didn't, um, like fully dive in, I guess. Um, I didn't use them. I think if I would have done things differently looking back now, I would have. But at the time, I was just kind of trying to survive. (laughs) 
So I never really thought about, you know, joining any type of group or org. Um, I spent a lot of time just doing research and I worked, so I didn't have a lot of time, yeah. uh, but I would have liked to. Yeah, I think that's the part where I kind of seen <clears throat> based on different fields and majors, the involvement piece could actually be to your to your harm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's some parts that we what, what we want to showcase with this is that regardless if you're involved or not, you're still able to carry out research and your work in the way that you can and the best that you can with the resources that you have. But it doesn't mean that you always have to be in this association or this organization or buy in a membership of these things. Like you're able to still navigate and, and go through it. Um, and I have seen that some in some involvements, it does get you a little bit more exhausted than encouraging of actually continuing the work that you have to do. Yeah, I have um, the only other like org that I can think of is uh, there's a group. It's it's a joint organization between UC San Diego and USC's Health Science Campus. And it's among emergency, but it's led by, it's led by doctors. So they're urgent or uh, they're emergency medicine physicians. And um, have you guys heard of Al Otro Lado? It's, it's like a nonprofit in Tijuana that works with um, refugee seekers and asylees uh, that are trying to seek uh, asylum in the United States. And they're, they're at the border waiting for their court date or something like that. Um, and so I go once a month with them to, um, I help with the interviews because a lot of the doctors don't speak, you know, fluent Spanish. So I'll translate um, the, the interviews. I'll help with the medical evals. And then they have a mobile health clinic. So um, we also give just basic patient care. It's a harm reduction clinic. So for, um, for intravenous drug users, we'll give them like clean syringes and things like that um, at the border. So that network has been, I mean, so I guess my doctor network, all the doctors that have taken time to uh, help me and kind of uh, help me develop as a clinical researcher, which is a, a different you know, way of doing things too. Um, it's a non-traditional kind of way that to receive training when you're when you're not like in medical school to be a medical, you know, researcher. So, yeah, but I think most of my network has been either like interpersonal, someone I've met that kind of connects me to somebody else, but no, no big orgs. But it's still possible. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And um, as we're closing off, do you have any last comments or words of wisdom that you would like to leave our audience with? Um, I think just that uh, I'm reiterating what I said earlier, that everybody is unique. Everybody has their own unique story. And um, some of the things that maybe society or people have told you before um, that, that your unique circumstances are your weakness. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't believe, I wouldn't believe that I was told for a long time that what made me unique, um, was a weakness and was going to hold me back. And I think it actually ended up being, uh, the complete opposite. It, I think it's helped me so much and, and 
how I navigate. I just had to learn a little bit more about myself before I could see it as a strength. So I would just encourage people to one, not listen to, to people that are making them feel uh, like shame and guilt for being unique or different. Uh, and then two, to, to try to take the time uh, to learn about whatever, you know, it is that they have going on uh, because the chances of them running into someone that has something similar, a similar experience are, are high. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for spending some time to, oh, to, thank you so much for <laughs> spending some time to talk with us and, and tell us your, your journey and what you've been up to. I'm really excited to see what your dissertation will come out and you know we'll come later on bring you on board to like give us a an update of what you've been in (laughs) uh we're so like grateful that you reached out and we connected um virtually through um not only in social media but also the networks that we we can also like build off from a platform like this one awesome thank you guys for having me this was really Cool. And I love what you guys are doing. So if I can help in any way in the future, just let me know. I'm happy to help. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I'll see you all. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for joining us in this episode. We are so grateful for um, being able to have a conversation with you and and um, excited that we were able to connect through social media uh, and for the wisdom that you shared with us today. So moving on to our VIPOC business shout out. Um, this week, we're actually shouting multiple um, businesses and we wanted to focus on a list that was created um, courtesy of their Instagram handle is at Warren, W-O-R-N underscore where, W-A-R-E. Um, their name on Instagram is Isabel Osh, um, Osgood Roach. Um, and was reposted by at Angie Thomas, A-N-G-E-I-E-T-H-O-M-A-S. And we're going to start by listing the Black-owned bookstores to buy from. Uh, The first one is Brave and Kind Books from Decatur, uh, Georgia, Uh, Semicolon, a um, bookstore in Chicago, Illinois, uh, Brain Lair Books from South Bend, Indianapolis. Uh, Afriware Books, Maywood, Illinois. Uh, Detroit Book City, Detroit, Michigan. Um, Mahogany Books from Washington, D.C. Uh, Uncle Bobby's Philadelphia, Pennsylvania um, based bookstore. And then Haykim's Bookstore from Philadelphia, also from Philadelphia, um, Pennsylvania. Harriet's Bookshop in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Ashe by the Bay uh, in the Bay Area, California. SO1 Books in Los Angeles, California. The Lit Bar in Bronx, New York. Cafe Con Libros in Brooklyn, New York. And Frugal Bookstore in Roxbury, Massachusetts. So there you go. Check them out and we'll list the links to each of these specific bookstores on our description. I know it's a bit later in the semester or if you are in the quarter system, you probably are just starting. So if you're faculty looking to 
uh, change up your required list of readings or would like to do some recommendations of places where they could buy instead of a, the big generic bookstores from the institutions or the other one that I shall not name. Um, you can promote some of the books that they have and um, especially if you are in the East or West Coast, there is some variation of some of them that you can um, support. And for this episode concludes our season three. Uh, thank you all so much for um, following us. And we covered so many different topics in this season that we haven't covered in our previous ones. And hope that we um, bring in some really cool guests for season four. We will start releasing some of those episodes um, soon. So for this time, we won't take as much of a long break. Um, and we have received a couple of listener letters and we wanted to read one and give them a shout out in this episode. Uh, thank you so much, Janet, for your message that you sent us through um, Instagram. And it, the message starts with, hi, I just came across your page and podcast and listened to the master's thesis breakdown. And oh my gosh, I wish I would have found you sooner. I just completed my master's and I had to do a thesis. Thank you for the space. I'm looking forward to listening to other episodes as Latina first gen in a profession that is predominantly white females. It's so nice to hear other Latinas in higher ed. Gracias. Um, thank you so much, Jeanette. And again, all these episodes, especially the ones for the master's thesis, I hope that those episodes were informative and that would help others um, along the way. Please make sure to share any relevant episodes that um, you think others will find it helpful. Um, let them know if you have any topics or anything that you'd like us to cover or would like to be uh, a guest in our show. As we mentioned earlier in this episode with Cynthia, definitely uh, reach us out, reach out to us, um, preferably through email as it's easier to actually organize some of the messages. Um, if you sent us through um, a DM or anything, that's totally fine. We'll just take a little bit longer to respond. If you have anything that you would like to discuss in our episodes, let us know. Um, tell us what you would like to discuss, and that would make it easier for us to create an episode for it. Uh, thank you all so much, and until next time. For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shoutouts and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter at X Code Switchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or Cash App us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you. And don't forget, switch the code. Don't let the code switch you.